0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit LCEF.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 31st, we are studying Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Through Amos, the Lord recites the repeated ways that he has attempted to bring his people to return to him in repentance and faith, yet they have not returned. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ, as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: It's so good to be here with you, Pastor Apple.
0: Pastor Ill, as we get started this morning in Amos chapter 4, give us some context. How do we get to this point in Amos's prophecy?
1: Well, here in Amos, Amos is speaking his words of prophecy mostly to uh, the northern kingdom, and as he's speaking with them, he is calling them to repent. And as he's calling them to repent and turn from their sin, especially from their their wealth and their opulence and their self-reliance, it can strike us with a little bit of uh, concern because it seems, not, not even just it seems, but it is that God himself is calling his people to repent, and he is using plagues and famines and all kinds of bad things. And God is sending bad things against his people. In other places in the Old Testament, we're used to God sending bad things against the enemies of his people, but here he is actually sending bad things, plagues and famines and blights and mildew, against his own people in order that they would, uh, when they see this calamity, turn from their sin and their sinfulness that they would repent and that they would turn to the Lord their God and live.
0: This is something that is an issue worth talking about today, and I know we will as we get into the text. We've seen Amos bring this up already. Earlier in, in chapter 3, verse 6, we spent some time discussing the section of that verse that, that asks the question, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it. And so we grappled with that question for a little bit on that episode of of those verses in chapter three there. And that same issue is going to come up here as well in chapter four, as to how the Lord would use things like disaster and plagues, these bad things, suffering you might consider, as ways that he's going to call his people to repentance. The, The other thing that stands out from what you were saying there, Pastor Ill, is normally we think of these plagues as being sent against God's enemies. What we're going to see here is that these plagues actually are sent against God's own people, which is a nice parallel to what we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos, how over and over again the Lord spoke through Amos that there were three and four transgressions, that he was not going to revoke the punishment for these pagan nations. And then when he gets to his own people, to Judah and Israel, the exact same language is used. And here again, we have that same thought occurring that God's own people, Israel, primarily the Northern Kingdom, they have been no different than the pagan nations. And so, as we'll see in our text today, the Lord is going to treat them as the pagan nations. But I think, as you're you're going to drive us toward, and you've already hinted at at least, he's doing that for the purpose of calling them to repentance, so that they might they might live. Pastor L, any more thoughts on the the context before we dig into the text? Sure.
1: Uh, in addition to the way that Amos talks about those six nations that surround the people of Israel and Judah, he also has in mind. I would argue, the ten plagues against the people of Egypt. And we'll talk about that, too, in the text. And also on how Elijah, during his ministry, would call for a famine against God's own people because their king was being unjust and was not leading them in faith and faithfulness. And this ministry of Moses and the ten plagues and the ministry of Elijah is something that Amos also continues in the line of um also there's a really kind of an interesting hebrew phrase in the beginning of our text when he's referring to a famine or a lack of harvest he uses this hebrew idiom that strikes our english-speaking ears kind of odd Uh, the idiom for um, you've been hungry or you were undergoing a famine is actually i have given you cleanness of teeth uh, I guess, as it was taught to me in seminary, it th- thinks about how you can't get any, any broccoli or rice or anything else stuck in your teeth if you haven't eaten anything. And so here they have clean teeth, teeth that aren't defiled by food because there's been a famine going on. And so when you hear cleanness of teeth, simply think uh, teeth that don't need to be brushed because there's nothing stuck in them because there's been nothing to eat.
0: Very good. Let's take a look at this text, Pastor Ilden. We're in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. There's the text before us. Pastor Earl, before we dig into the specifics there in those verses, I'd like to have you comment a little bit more on the Old Testament background of this text. You mentioned the ten plagues that are sent on Egypt. You mentioned Elijah's ministry in the Northern Kingdom and the famine that existed during his time. What in the Old Testament that's come before the book of Amos do we need to know that helps us to understand the things that Amos is preaching here in chapter 4, 6 through 13?
1: So There's a variety of things where Amos is drawing from further back in the Old Testament. And it starts with God being the one who created everything, the one who has the authority uh, to make light in the very beginning, the one who walks in the garden at the cool of the day and who even treads on the heights of the earth, that this God that is speaking to the people through Amos the prophet, is the God who created everything. He's the God of Genesis 1 and 2, and he is the God who controls all of nature and who has promised to preserve his people. In his preserving of his people, his actions were seen against the people of Egypt, and when the Egyptians would not let God's people go, God came against the people of Egypt with the ten plagues, starting with turning the the all of the rivers into blood then sending locusts and boils and in many and various ways destroying the Egyptians uh, even to the point where hail came down on their crops when they experienced famine when their livestock were killed and in all manner of things god showed his power against the egyptians but in the final plagues god's people were spared the plague where they lived but the egyptians did suffer from those plagues sent <clears throat> sent by god what makes this reading somewhat alarming is there's no distinction and there's no differentiation between god's people and the enemy or the opponents anymore. Now God is going to treat his people like he treated the unbelieving Egyptians. Uh, Or with Elijah, there was the time when God cut off the rain from among his people, and God provided for Elijah outside of the land of Israel, and uh, he sent ravens to bring food for Elijah to eat. He sheltered Elijah with a widow in the Canaanite, that is the non-Israelite city of Zarephath. And he cared for Elijah away from God's people, because among God's people there was famine. In all of this, we see the testimony of a God who, for the sake of repentance and for the sake of the return to faith, calls his people back even by sending calamity on them, and by allowing them to suffer. This strikes our, our American ears as really, really uh, insensitive and unloving, that God would allow these things to come against his people. Uh, the same means that have come against the Egyptians, the locusts, and the pestilence, warfare, all of this is going to come against the people of Israel because no longer are they the ones who are God's chosen people that he is fighting for now they are just like the unbelievers that he is fighting against the tables have turned and that makes this a reading that both for the people that Amos is prophesying to and for us a somewhat alarming reading
0: it, it is an alarming reading. So a couple of things that I, I want to point out there that you brought out that I think are important. The study that we just did here on Sharper Iron of the book of Exodus, and knowing the ten plagues from that, is very helpful for this text. And as you pointed out, there are actually some similarities in terms of what Amos lists here in chapter 4 that, he has, that the Lord has sent against his people corresponds directly to what the Lord sent against the people of Egypt in the 10 plagues. For example, uh, the locusts that are mentioned in verse where did it go verse 9, right? You've got locusts. Um there's there's a matter of of darkness that that is talked about. So so you've got a, a similarity in terms of the plagues what the Lord sent on Egypt, now he has sent against his own people. And the reason that I think that's important. One of the points that we we emphasized when we were looking at the plagues here on Sharper Iron, was that the Lord's not doing this because he's mean. He's not doing this to hurt people. He's doing this to call people to repentance. And that's what he wanted for the people of Egypt. That's what he wanted for Pharaoh. He wanted his own people to see that. And so now he has sent these same plagues against Israel for the same reason. He wants them to return to him. Now, as we're as we heard already, they didn't. And we'll, we'll look at that more as we dig into the text. But the Lord does these things because he wants his people to return to him. The other thing that I, I think we want to point out here is that these various things that the Lord says he has done to his people shouldn't really be a surprise to them if they've been paying attention to what Moses gave them in those first five books, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The Lord gives his word to his people through Moses that when they keep the covenant, certain blessings come their way, among them things like rain and plenty of food. When they don't keep the covenant, certain curses are carried out upon them. And those curses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy both, that's exactly what the Lord has sent against his people. So the idea here for Amos is, he's telling the people of Israel, look, if you had been paying attention if you had known the Lord's word, you would have recognized that the things that happened to you weren't just random events. These were things that the Lord actually sent against you to call you to repentance, but you missed it. And so that that I think is, is some helpful Old Testament background that maybe helps us grapple a little bit more with these questions, these big questions that you've already brought up for, for us, Pastor Ill. Um, so so with that, let's let's do a little bit of of digging into the, the text itself, if that's all right. Or, or you want to add anything else in terms of context?
1: Nope. I'm I'm ready to
0: keep charging in. Good deal. So you already talked a little bit. Of, this is I think this is my favorite part of this text because I I find it humorous. And you're right, it's it's a common Hebrew idiom, but I gave you cleanness of teeth right? Um, we've, we've seen Amos already use satire. He's, he's called uh, some women the cows of Bashan. He's, he's used a call to worship as uh, ironic. And now he says, through the, the Lord says through Amos, right? I gave you cleanness of teeth. You didn't have to floss because you didn't have anything to eat. He's, he's using that same satire. So the first plague that we've got before us, uh, Pastor Ill, is this matter of famine in verse six. What do you see there?
1: So there, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about this is it's really emphatic. It, you could almost read that as, I myself gave you cleanness of teeth. And even before we get to the cleanness of teeth, God wants his people to know this comes from him. This is not just that famine happened to them. God sent famine. This is what he gave them. And so God sends famine on them, and there was a lack of bread in their places, and they didn't return to him. What they had done coming out of the land of Egypt, uh, they did not do anymore. There they complained that they were not eating enough food, that the food that they had had in Egypt was better than the food that they had in the wilderness. God gave them this manna from heaven each day. And they complained because they didn't think that was good enough. But now God withholds food from them and they don't turn to the Lord their God. They don't ask Him to provide for them more food. When God cuts off their food from them, they don't turn to Him at all. This is something that, compared to the people in the book of Exodus, again and again they said, God, why are you treating us this way? And now, they couldn't care less that God has sent this punishment against them. God, by cutting off their food, is calling them to turn and to believe in him, to ask for his help, to realize that the Lord their God cares for them, and they don't return to him. And God declares this to them. He makes this statement. Here's what I did in order that you would turn back to me, and you didn't turn back and i'm telling you about it and that conveys the complete and total apathy that the people who had been called god's people now showed to the lord their god
0: yeah yeah apathy i think is a good word for the people of israel here in the book of amos that they just they just don't care look at look at all the lord has done and they just don't care i find it I find it a bit ironic too that amos brings these various plagues out at this moment in the people's history we've talked about this on previous episodes that historically speaking in terms of politics economics societal life for many of the people of israel at this moment in the 8th century bc life is pretty good for them there's lots of people dwelling in in great houses they've got plenty of money things on the surface seem good and amos reminds them of and we don't know when this happened there's not maybe a specific reference but Amos reminds them of the leaner times and and points to those as saying look, this was what the Lord was doing. he was calling you back to himself but you didn't return and and that apathy I mean, it's just it's a very tragic thing I think Pastor ill when when you see that in in the Lord's people that that they just don't just don't care. And to, to look at that in the 8th century BC and, and to see it among ourselves today, right? Not not among them, but among us. We, we include ourselves in this. It's just, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And, and you, you can sense Amos and the Lord both here, as, as Amos is going to continue this repeated refrain, refrain, yet you did not return to me. It's just, it's terribly tragic because the Lord wants them. To return. That's why he sent these plagues. That's why he's he's still speaking to them. So the second thing then that Amos mentions in verse seven, he talks about the the rain that he withheld. So first was famine. Second comes drought. Which, as you pointed out, the Lord's done this before under the ministry of Elijah. What's going on here, Pastor L?
1: So here at various places and in various cities, uh, while the grain is growing. And when the harvest can be affected, it stops raining. And so it will rain over here and then it'll rain over there. But there's not enough consistent rain for the crops to grow, uh, which probably contributes to the famine and the cleanness of teeth in verse 6. And so the people would go hither and thither looking for food, uh, trying to get enough water to drink, and they wouldn't be satisfied. If the people can't be satisfied, then certainly the crops and their grain growing in the field wouldn't be satisfied either and so it's not only that they didn't have enough drinking water which is true but also their crops didn't have enough rain to grow and this led to that same famine where everybody would as they're wandering back and forth looking for where the rain had most recently fallen look at each other and they all knew that the rain wasn't coming. When the people in Exodus didn't have enough water to drink, what did they do? They cried out to God. But here, once again, instead of crying out to God, they live in apathy. Instead of calling on the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who divided the land and the sea, the one who sent rain to water the earth, instead of calling to him, they lived in Apathy, again, in that idea of, no, we don't need to ask God to send rain on our fields consistently. We don't need to ask God for his help. Well, what can God do for us? We can take him or leave him. And in the words of Amos, they left him because they couldn't be bothered to ask God for help, even though he had promised that he was the Lord, their God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who made them and everything that existed, and they couldn't be bothered to ask for his help.
0: And they they didn't recognize his hand in what was going on either. The Lord was trying desperately to wake his people up and not only did they not call to him, but they just they just ignored him entirely. Or, as we've heard Amos address already, and we'll hear him address further, they, they attempted to go to him in their self-chosen ways. Rather than seeking him in the place where he chose for his name to dwell in Jerusalem, they did so in Bethel or Gilgal or other places. They went after him in their own self-made ways. But over and over again, the point remains the same. They did not return to the Lord. With about three and a half minutes left here, Pastor L, let's let's tackle the the next thing. And and you've already kind of brought this out for us. How these plagues have a certain order to them, and they build on one another. So a famine is related to drought, is related to the the death of crops, and that's where the Lord continues to attack in verse nine with things like blight and mildew. What's there for us, Pastor L?
1: So the people haven't eaten, they haven't gotten enough to drink, their crops have died in the fields, and now in their gardens and in their orchards, in all that they have left that they think is theirs, God himself strikes with blight and mildew. Uh, that is, their, their orchards and their vegetables and their garden crops died on the vine. Uh, they rotted even as they were growing. The locusts came and ate the fig trees and the olive trees, so that there was no harvest of those either. It's not just the crops in the field that were destroyed, but it was all of the crops, the gardens, the orchards, everything that the people had to their name, everything from which they could draw their opulence and their importance and their self-sufficiency, everything that made them who they were, And everything that made this life in the 8th century so comfortable, well, it was taken away from them. And this is the third time that God uses that really emphatic, I myself struck you with blight and with mildew. God speaks clearly that this is his work that he is doing against them. He is taking away from them everything that they have. And waiting for them to turn and to call upon him. Uh, This also sounds a little bit like Job, where everything that Job has is taken away from him in his suffering, and he cries out to the name of the Lord. But here, as everything is taken away from the people, they don't cry out to the Lord. Instead, they do not return to him. Once again, in the middle of calamity and in the middle of suffering, Instead of turning to God, they simply go their own way and don't ask God who is able to help them and who wants to help them to be their God. The one who is pleased to open his hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing is there for his people and his people don't care
0: job was one of, one of the references that was coming to my mind too as you were talking about this one thing after another is taken away. and again the parallel to the time in Egypt as well I think is very striking. The plagues against the people of Egypt successively build upon one another, particularly the the hail and the locusts come one right after the other. the hail got one of the crops, The locust got the rest of them. And you see that same thing happening that the Lord is doing to his own people now, trying to wake them up, but they don't return to him. That's what the Lord wants. That's what Amos wants. That's what we're looking at here on Sharper Iron on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, October 31st, we are studying Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, with Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we had left off with verse 9, where the Lord sent blight and mildew. He takes out not only the crops in the field, but now the gardens and vineyards next to their homes. Still, they don't return. So next, next, now again, it seems these plagues again are building on each other. The Lord sends a pestilence what that's a word that i know i'm not terribly familiar with Pestilence. what's a pestilence anyways
1: a, a pestilence is another word for a plague uh, as he, god says that he sent a pestilence after the manner of egypt it makes me think of the the boils and the sicknesses that broke out among the egyptians and so here god is overtly comparing what he is doing to his own people to what he did to the Egyptians in the 10 plagues, but that he spared his own people from. When the Egyptians broke out with boils, his own people didn't. But now he sends among them a pestilence or a plague, a disease, just like Egypt did. And just like the young men of Egypt, when they pursued the people of Israel into the Red Sea, were destroyed, now the people of Israel's young men and the soldiers are struck down. The horses are carried away and destroyed. Their camp stinks. It starts to smell like death and rotting flesh and corpses. In all of these ways, God is continuing to let his people suffer and not even simply to let them suffer. God himself is bringing suffering to his people so that they will turn from their sin and their sinfulness, so that they will return to faith so that they will cry out to God to help them, because God is patient and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he's waiting to provide for his people, and they don't ask. They don't return. They don't look to the Lord their God. They simply take what comes without any turn towards God. And once again, we see the people's apathy, their carelessness for the gifts and the promises that God has given to them.
0: Yeah, again, just to, to kind of rehearse how this is going, drought, or sorry, famine, drought, the uh, plagues, or sorry, oh goodness, Pastor Hill, I am just off today. <laughs> the drought blight and the mildew, and famine, right? Yeah, yeah, blight the and destruction mildew, of the I'm, I'm orchards. trying to find my, my place, right? Pestilence, it it, it continues. And so he's he's touched everything around them. And now in these verses, he's touching he's touching themselves, right? With with the sicknesses of Egypt and then the death of their own warriors, even the, the best of the best among them, it gets more and more personal. The, again, you it's almost like in, in chapters 1 and 2 how we, we talked about those uh, oracles as a noose that's tightening around the people. You're seeing that noose that the Lord's describing here, that's what he's done, but they haven't returned. And now to the point in verse 11, this is the final straw, you might say, where, where he now compares what's happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Pastor Ill talk about verse 11 for us
1: so here he says i myself overthrew some of you as when god overthrew sodom and gomorrah and you were a brand plucked out of the burning so god hasn't completely wiped them out but when destruction is coming upon them when their cities are being destroyed in the middle of everything else that has come before this he is once again waiting for them to cry out to him, and they still don't turn. They still live in faithlessness, they still live in apathy, and they still don't look to God as the one who has all authority and all power, as the one who can and will save them. They aren't looking for a savior And they simply are accepting these bad things that happen and not looking in faith to God, who indeed wills and wants to help them.
0: And so verse 12, then, the Lord gets to his therefore. says, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And Pastor Ill, this sounds like meeting God in this sense is not good news for the people.
1: Not at all. Um, it it reminds me of those old B-Westerns, if anybody else watches B-Westerns ever, where you know the Black Hat comes out into the street and they're about ready to have their gunfight. And he'll sneer at the guy in the white hat and he'll say, what do you want on your tombstone? Or uh, prepare to meet your maker. <laughs> this, though, isn't a Black Hat speaking to the heroic cowboy. This is God himself. I will come and I will visit you. And this is not good news. Everything else that I've done, trying to show you that I am here and that I care, you have ignored. When I visit you, you will meet your God. This is going to be a really tough situation these readings that we hear in Amos 4, 6 to 13, so often we want to look back at the people in the 8th century BC and say, how can you be so apathetic? How can you be so blind to what God is doing in your midst? But it reminds me of part of the Good Friday church service, the chief service, where there are reproaches that are given to God's people. And one of them goes like this, thus says the Lord, What have I done to you, O my people? And wherein have I offended you? Answer me, for I have conquered all your foes, and you have given me over and delivered me to those who persecute me. For I have fed you with my word and refreshed you with living water, and you have given me gall and vinegar to drink, O my people. And to that, Christ's church cries out, Holy Lord God, holy and mighty God, holy and most merciful Redeemer, God eternal, allow us not to lose hope in the face of death and hell. O Lord, have mercy. And along with that, this is why it's completely fitting that we read this text on Reformation Day. We might think, We were waiting for for this diet of worms, uh, here I stand kind of a moment. But instead, we have a call from God to his people to call out to him for his mercy and for his grace. And there are times when we're tempted to take a wonderful celebration of God's word, like the Reformation, and make it seem like it's much more about us being Lutheran or us being Christian or something that we have done than about what God has done for us, protecting and preserving us, calling, uh, putting us in those places by his own action, that we see the terrible things that he has the authority to do and that we continue to pray, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, don't do to us what we deserve because as we sit here 10 centuries away from what happened to the people in, wait, I'm bad at math, not 10 centuries. um, Instead, uh, 28 centuries away from what the people of Amos's day were suffering. And we say, how could you be so ignorant? But in our own lives, how often do we When we have these opportunities, when we say God is working among us and God is not pleased with my own individual actions, not say Lord have mercy. How often do we not seem to care that God is the one who is eager to help us, the one who is wanting to save us, the one who wants to save us to the point that he sent his one and only son into the flesh in order that any who and all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life and how often do we end up as the apathetic ones this prophecy counts for us just as much as it counts for the people of the 8th century bc this is a prophecy that christ's church is right to hear today but that really does strike our ears as being unusual We talk so often about how God loves us and wants to protect us and wants to preserve us. This idea that God himself would send bad things, calamity, against his people is really alarming. And it's right for our ears to pick up and say, whoa, God himself is punishing his people. This makes me uncomfortable. And so it should we talk about this as god's foreign work or god's alien work this is not the work that god wants to do to his people and we hear that even in this passage as he says these are the things i did yet you did not return god's goal that we can see in this reading and throughout the book of amos is that god's people would repent of their sin that they would return in the middle of this calamity and it raises for us the question what do Christians do when bad things happen? And That's when exactly bad the question happen,
0: I was going to ask you, Pastor Ill. What do oh, Christians I stole it from do? you? I'm sorry. You, you did. Well, no, I, I, you, I appreciate what you're saying. This is great stuff. Uh, but that is, that is where I, I wanted you to go is so what do we do as Christians? How do we respond when we see tragedies, plagues like this? Because the things that Amos points out—cleanness of teeth, famine, drought. I mean, Central Texas has a drought probably every other year, Pastor Ill. When we, when we see these things as Christians, how do we respond? What's the, what's the faithful Christian way to respond to these things?
1: Um, this is a question that actually got asked of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, when uh, some of the Jews came to him and they said, hey Jesus, what about those men that Herod had killed and he mixed their blood with the sacrifices and poured it on the altar? What about them? And Jesus questioned them and said, do you think that they were worse sinners than all of the other Gentiles, that they would be treated this way? I tell you, repent, repent, or worse things will happen to you." And then he references a tower that fell in the neighborhood in Jerusalem of Siloam. Uh, They were building this tower and it fell down, and apparently 18 men of them died. And he said, were those worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? But I say to you, repent in order that something worse doesn't happen to you. When we look at famine and drought, when we look at cancer and disease, when we look at sudden death, warfare, political unrest, when we look at suffering not just in the world, but even in the life of the Christian and in the life of God's people, what would God have us do? Repent, turn, cry out. This is exactly the time for that prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here, in the middle of our calamity and in the middle of our own suffering, when bad things happen, we talk about this is the time we cry out for God's help. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has promised to preserve his people. He is the one who, again and again and again, in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, says that he will come to visit and redeem his people... And now he calls us simply to repent, to recognize that he is God with all authority in heaven and on earth. And we simply recognize that, and we confess that he is the one with all authority. And we call upon his name, praying for his mercy, Uh, even as Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. Not only from spiritual evil, from the devil himself, but also from all evil that happens to our body and our lives. God cares deeply about our bodies and our lives, and in the middle of our suffering, we cry out to him. I think that as we're having this conversation on Reformation Day and talking about how God works for his people, One of the Reformation teachings of Martin Luther that doesn't always get talked about uh, as much as maybe it should, is the idea that God does allow his people to suffer. Luther calls this the theology of the cross, not just that Jesus was crucified on the cross, but that Jesus has called his church, his people, to take up their own cross and follow him. And here we see suffering and calamity And we recognize that in that suffering and calamity, we cry out. We don't look for opulence. We don't look for riches. We don't look for it that our lives would be made because we're Christians. But as Christians, we expect to suffer. Because out of that suffering comes this opportunity for us to cry, Lord, have mercy on me. And so that's exactly what we cry out.
0: One one of the things, and it's a related question, and everything you said uh, has has been great, that when suffering comes our way, the response that Scripture calls us to is repentance. But related in there, and and maybe it's a step that we've skipped over in the conversation, although you've brought it up previously, Pastor El, is this, uh, this thought that's emphasized by Amos here, not just hinted at, but actually emphasized, where he records the Lord's words that... I myself did this to you, not, not only... I mean, we're talking about tragedies, sicknesses, et cetera, that happened to us, but, but the other issue that, that we grapple with is, is that, well, why did this happen? Did God send this to me? Is he judging me for something? And and that, I think, is a question that Amos invites us to to grapple with, Pastor El, how do we how do we think about that as Christians today and God's role in sending such things even upon his own people? This is a question
1: that comes up in in Bible studies that I teach an awful lot. And probably in a lot of congregations, people want to ask their pastor. They ask Scripture. I thought God was loving and merciful and patient and gracious. And now he's talking about sending plagues and pestilences and famine and drought. Is this the same God? And and when we read this and say, I myself gave you cleanness of teeth, I myself sent the blight and the mildew and the locusts, I myself brought the gave up your your young men and your horses. Makes us really uncomfortable how can it be that the same god who loves us is the same god who sends evil and calamity and disaster against us and there's there's a move that sometimes uh christians become more comfortable with because we say it's not that god sends disaster but god allows disaster to come on his people uh the problem with that is that's not what Amos 4, 6 to 13 says, and that's not how Scripture consistently speaks. Here, it says that God himself brought these things against his people. These things, uncomfortably, are God's work, not his primary work, not his beloved work, not his proper work. These are his foreign work, the work that he doesn't like. It reminds me of uh, when I was growing up, I, I didn't always obey my dad the way I should have. And every once in a while, I would get turned over his knee. And and a few times he would say, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I always wanted to look up at him and say, now, just who do you think you're kidding? This hurts me an awful lot. Uh, I never did say that, which is probably a really wise move as a child. <laughs> but, this work of god this foreign work of of sending punishment and calamity from his own hand against his people treating his own people as the unbeliever is not something that god takes pleasure in it is not something that god delights in god delights in faith and that's not what he is receiving from his people and he is is shaking them disciplining them calling them to hear his word and to believe in him and i think that verse 13 really brings that point home if it's okay can we can we jump ahead to verse 13 pastor apt
0: sure let me let me reread it cuz it's been yeah and awesome. cuz we haven't really looked at it let me reread verse 13 and, and then help us tie that together with everything we've been talking about verse 13 again states for behold he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of the hosts is his name." Pastoral, how does that verse tie some of these thoughts together for us?
1: That verse ties us all the way back to creation, to Genesis one and two, where God creates everything, who makes the mountains and the winds. He makes man know his thoughts. He even forms the man from the dust of the earth and he treads on the heights of the earth uh, and Yahweh the God of hosts is his name. And we think, well, that's all fine and good. But what does that have to do as a word of good news to God's people? The ultimate good news, and where this prophecy and this passage point to our Lord Jesus, is right here. Because when Jesus is incarnate and born to Mary, What does Jesus do? He is the one who prays from the mountains, who stands up in the prow of a boat and tells the wind, silence, be still. He is the one who reads minds and tells man his thoughts. He is the one who controls the light and the darkness. And when he, Yahweh of hosts, our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, is hung upon the cross, he makes the morning the midday darkness. He treads on the heights of the earth as he is risen and as he ascends into heaven. Who is this that comes doing miracles, healing diseases, speaking of love and forgiveness so that people cry out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It is Jesus, our Lord, This is the work of Yahweh, the God of hosts. This is the work of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who comes with his name for his people. And in the middle of them treating God as not their God, and in the middle of them being not God's people, he is continually faithful to them, suffering, dying, and rising. As uncomfortable as we might be with a text that asks how is it that God can send calamity against his people? We're even more dumbstruck when we have to ask the question, what kind of a God is this who sends his own son into the flesh to suffer and to die, to rise, to be a human being just like us? If he is God in the flesh, what business does he have being just like us? that business is the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. That is God's proper work, the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that God's people would receive his mercy and his grace so that God's people would be loved by him. When we wonder and when we worry, is God punishing me? We look at Christ and we say there in Christ The one who knew no sin became my sin, so that I have the righteousness of God. And now that I have the righteousness of God, I don't need to worry about suffering or calamity, because I have something better than all of that. I have Jesus, my Lord, who is with me until the very end of the age. And that is a promise to look forward to indeed.
0: Pastor Elle, we have just over two and a half minutes left. Any points that we didn't get to in the text or, or wrap this all up together for us this morning?
1: Uh, one final point is this idea that, that God uh, sends evil against us. We, we want to soften that. We don't want to talk about a God who treats his people that way. Um, we want to justify God. If, if you're listening along at home and thinking, there's got to be a word for that, there is. That word is theodicy, uh, that idea of trying to justify God or trying to get God off the hook. Amos 4, verses 6 to 13 gives us no room to take God off the hook. It gives us no room to say it's not really God himself who is sending this calamity against his people. God loves his people so much That he is willing, even causing them to suffer, so that they cry out to him. And when they don't cry out to him, he says, prepare to meet your God. I will come and meet you. The way that we would expect that to be would be with more punishing and more calamity. But the way that God fulfills that word ultimately is with the suffering and the calamity of the death of Jesus our Lord. And in that death of Jesus, our Lord, it's not that God is justified, but God is the justifier, the one who makes us righteous, not because he needs us to get him off the hook. That's ridiculous. We can't do that. Instead, it is God who gets us off of the hook of our own sin, of our own apathy, of our own carelessness for him and his word, and as god forgives us for all of our sin in christ we see that god has indeed come and he has met with us his people and he has declared that we are his beloved saints loved by him forgiven by him does he from time to time see fit to send calamity to call us to repentance and faith he does but most importantly and don't forget this he has sent Jesus for you, for your forgiveness, for your comfort, and for your peace, and that doesn't go away. Not now, not ever.
0: Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Pastor Ill, thank you for your time today.
1: So good to be with you.